This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, A Duke for Diana, by Grand Dame of Romance, Sabrina Jeffries. A Duke for Diana kicks off a dazzling new series featuring a talk-of-the-ton trio of young women who've eschewed working as governesses to utilize their talents for fashion, food, and music by running their own party-planning enterprise elegant occasions and if they and their wealthy clients happen to find love along the way it just makes their efforts all the more rewarding event planner that's just like you morgan i know i can't wait to read about getting bids for porta potties and indemnity clauses (laughs) interestingly enough the love interest is a civil engineer porta potties are important to both of them A self-made civil engineer, specifically. (laughs) And he's trying to get his sister married off, which is the other romance in this twofer. The whole series is meant to be full of double romances, with lots of female solidarity thrown in for good measure, as well as the well-researched Regency historical fans' love. You don't need us to tell you about Sabrina Jeffries. She is one of the better-known names in historical romance, owing to her Duke Dynasty series. Book page writes, the women she writes are spirited, intelligent, devilish, brave, independent, and politically and culturally savvy. You can find A Duke for Diana by Sabrina Jeffries wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About getting your furrows fingered. About following your sister to Paris. About short form fiction. About being an herbalist. About finding unlooked in corners of history. (laughs) About the British Foreign Office. For some reason. It's always about the British Foreign Office, but mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're talking about a romance novella from the anthology Duke I'd Like to F. Uh, It is also its own novella now. The Duke Makes Me Feel by Adriana Herrera. So I got this book as a standalone novella from Amazon, and Isabeau picked it out from the anthology. I could, like, not even find the anthology when I went to purchase. Crazy. I have a hard, or I have a hard copy of it. Yeah. 
And um, we decided to do a short story because we were short on time. And then subheading of our podcast is we meant to read a short story. We instead chose a novella. But this one I found to move at like a really quick clip. It did. I agree. This book is a full 10% paratext. Dukes and their demands are nothing new for Marina Bain Torres. Her newfound success has her little apothecary teeming with ill-mannered aristocrats, but as tiresome as they are, she needs the business. When the unflappable Duke of Lindley storms into her shop and makes her an offer she'd be a fool to refuse, Marina soon finds herself on the adventure of a lifetime with a man who is as infuriating as he is intriguing. Oh, The Duke Makes Me Feel was originally published in the USA Today bestselling Duke I'd Like to F anthology, which is no longer available in electronic form interesting what happened there why is that that why is that a thing slide into our dms if you know why duke i'd like to f is no longer electronically available i think it was because they were donating to charity but like why would that have stopped yeah they all decided that they had solved the problem (laughs) i'm sure that's not it (laughs) they were like let's just call it a day it's done uh, all right. Anything s- stand out to you about that back of the book? No. Why did you choose this short story out of all the sh- out of all the novellas in Duke? I'd like to f. I chose it because I have heard of Andrea Herrera before. We've yeah repped her on this podcast for Frolic before, but I've actually not read any of her books, and I have been curious. She's on my TBR, and so I was like, well, let's see if I even. Yeah. Jive with this, right? Like, let's see if this is an author that people keep telling me I will like. So, like, this seems like a really low stakes version of trying to figure that out, Um, which is why I chose this one out of the anthology. Because, like, Joanna Shoup is also in that anthology, and I know you and I already really like her. So, like, Um, Sierra Simone, who wrote Priest, obviously. So it's like, let's do somebody that we haven't done that I'm also curious about. Well, that's I, I love that you point that out because that is like such a great way to like such a way that novellas and anthologies are a tool of romance is that kind of communal PR campaign. I feel like totally. romance, I don't know, I think more than fantasy, more than sci-fi has this like extreme PR churn. And it can be like really tricky because a lot of people get a lot of hype for their first book and then it's like, "All right, see you later." Good luck mm-hmm. out there. Um, and then they struggle to get back on a bestsellers list after that. Um, there's a documentary about it on Hulu, actually. But I think, like, the being published in an anthology, I mean, that's the way we found Joanna Shoup was reading her in an anthology before I think her first standalone was published. But at the same time, I think it's, like, a tricky way to, like, evaluate an author because I think some authors just really shine in short form more so like they need that kind of editing and other authors um do not shine in short form um i would say lisa claypas like all of her issues are exacerbated in her novellas and short stories for example yeah all of the warts are exposed yeah it condenses all of the crazy and it just seems like a a basket full of spring-loaded snakes (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. But this novella doesn't, is not a basket full of spring-loaded snakes. No, it's like a really nice bath with like lilacs in it. It's clear to me that this anthology is really kind of centered on like steam 
Mm-hmm. And so I was expecting that. And it, indeed, like the story is, is a vessel for steam. It's a steam whistle. But it does commit to kind of, it, it does commit to what I would say is kind of almost like a thesis. Like this, to me, this novella works as like such a thesis statement for what historical romance is in 2022. Do you want to elucidate what that is? Yeah. So it's almost, it is kind of a, it's definitely a reaction against historical romance up to this point. And it's very interested in including people of color and telling kind of the stories of people of color in history. It also has like a pet project historical interest. In this case, it's apothecaries um, and early medicine, medicinal practices by women. It also has very similar to contemporary romance, I think, in this era, this really kind of obvious way of talking about consent and sex um, that's also supposed to everything that's supposed to make us think that the hero is a good person is political rather than like in in uh flowers from the storm we discover he's like a good person because of how like gently he can play with kittens Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a beautiful metaphor here we know he's a good person because of an impassioned speech he gave on women's suffrage at a salon yeah at a salon nobody's a virgin you know it just feels like a lot of it is just reacting against what came before without really I I just kind of wish, okay, I get a little frustrated with it. I wish there was more nuance there. Mm -hmm. I agree. This is not a nuanced novella. (laughs) There's a lot that I like in it um, because it speaks directly to my politics and delivers it in crinolines and linens without bustles. Like, (laughs) I mean, you really can't fire me down all the way. Like, if you're going to unzip my favorites, like, it's, it's literally all here, like, Part of the reason why he tracks down uh, Marina is because he has a sister who had gone unacknowledged by his ducal father that he's going to build and acknowledge and like build a relationship with and like give her money and like try to atone for the fact that his father left her and her mother destitute after learning of this child. And not only is like that shows that he's a good person, but also his sister is in an out lesbian relationship and is in Paris as a midwife, having had to flee because she's also uh, does abortion care in 1879. Like tip to toe, (laughs) everything about this book or this novella is. Yeah. Highly politicized and not nuanced. And, like, that's fine because, like, that's its project. But, like, what that happens is is that then this relationship that the story turns on has to grow in the shadow of that politic. And all relationships have to grow in the shadow of the politic, but sometimes the relationship can, like, claw back more sunlight than the politic. And, like, that's not happening here as much. No. And, like, I I also think historical accuracy is not the point of a historical novel or, or or historical romance. I like it. Like, I like to learn something. But there were some things about it that were like, there were some inaccuracies that I found really grating. So, for example, France famously hated abortions for a really long time. Like, ex- public execution. The last woman publicly executed in France was an abortion provider. 
in World War II. Yeah, women didn't get the right to vote in France until after World War II when it was being rebuilt by the Americans. Yeah. And married women couldn't access contraception until well after American and British women. Like, I think we like to forget because Paris feels less racially prejudiced. Yeah. Historically, that like France is a Catholic country. Yeah. It was up until it was a like almost oppressively anti-religion country that it is today. I also think like, you know, we talk about racial equality in France and I think that is actually a lived and varied experience. Um, And I think, you know, I talk about it. I'm always like a little bit weary of people who are hypercritical of America to the point of putting Europe on a pedestal because I think like your lived experience in France will very greatly you know um depending not only on your race but you know how you present any other kind of cultural identity and i also think if if you got in trouble for performing abortions in london you should not flee to paris <laughs> to continue i mean you could in theory because like your name wouldn't catch up to you as quickly maybe that's it maybe she's planning on hopping around everywhere forever um, but I would not go to... Wouldn't go to Ireland either, you know what I mean? I'm just no! Like... <laughs> no! You know? I wouldn't go to America. Yeah. Actually, I might go to parts of America because it was still the Wild West. Like, I don't know what I would do. Anyways, but I wouldn't go to Paris. And then there's... I think you're right. Like, we have this idea of Paris being the politically progressive historical space compared to England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the same but different. Like the water tastes a little bit different. You know, it's like they're still monarchical. They're still like incredibly rigid in their social structures and social hierarchies. Just because they don't call it the ton doesn't mean that they don't have aristos. Like, I mean, I guess like, yeah, it's the continent, which makes it (laughs) feel enough foreign from London. But like, whatever. I, yeah, like, yeah. Paris represents a getaway, right? Where, like, you can't be your full self in London because it's too rigid. What's the close place that you can get to in under 24 hours? Paris. I think, like, not acknowledging oppression, historical, like, trying to feature one country's historical oppression by acting like another country didn't do it feels like it feels like a more problematic historical inaccuracy to me. It's interesting because, like, there's a particular scene where they're in Paris and she's like, well, I'm not going to go to, like, I mean, she doesn't say the Champs-Élysées, but, like, that's the implication. Like, I'm not going to go to the fancy market. I'm going to go to, like, the immigrant market. And they're going to be, like, all these other kinds of smells and stuff. And then we meet this farmer from Marseille named Fung who sells citronelle. And we are immediately then introduced to one of France's colonial interests, Vietnam. (laughs) And, like, it's just left at that? (laughs) Yeah, and it's weird because I don't think France had colonized Vietnam by the time of this book. Oh, I I think it's possible that they had. And even if they hadn't, it was definitely close because 1879 is about uh, five to seven years before the scramble um, for the continent of Africa. And so like France was definitely in Southeast Asia at this point, whether or not they'd colonized the whole of Vietnam, they had definitely made inroads already. Yeah, they were in Vietnam, but but like to. But to the wider point that you're making, where it's like, England's so bad, look at all these foreign officers having children that they don't acknowledge and don't financially support. 
And then it's like, I don't know that this immigrant from colonized Vietnam is going to have as nice of an experience in Marseille as this novella <laughs> is kind of indicating that they might. Yeah. And then there's also so the book really, the no, this is like to a much lesser, a much smaller extent. I'm going from like big idea to petty uh, personal vendetta, but it really celebrates like French food. Yes. And there's this whole scene where they have a dinner, a private dinner in a cellar at a fancy restaurant. Um, and she says she enjoys a Bordeaux sauce, which was full of cream. French cooking is very full of cream. When you say Bordeaux sauce, I assume you mean a Bordelais, since they would be all mother sauces. And then <laughs> a Bordelais doesn't have cream in it, is, my, <laughs> is the headline. A Bordelais doesn't have cream in it. Yeah, that, like, seems right. It's like this book is very much, like, at odds with being, like, almost a platonic ideal of a modern historical romance, Mm -hmm. plus, like, the fact that it's a novella. And so, like, I don't know if, like, there was as much thought put into the historical setting. And at one point, I actually thought, is this author typically writing contemporaries? Mm -hmm. And they are. They are, because the ad mm -hmm. for their next book was a historical. Their American Dream series was their first series, and uh, those are all contemporaries. And so I think, like, at one point, so I'm not sure if I'm seeing, like, structures of contemporary in a historical setting, I think is noticing here. I totally agree. They're, like, because the scene in the cellar in particular, I was like, oh, this feels like that one the book uh, Not the Girl You Marry, where they go to um, Alinea in Chicago. I'm like, that is what this scene is. Like Except they shit all over Alinea. <laughs> they really did. <laughs> and they really enjoy their meal in, in this book, in this novella. Yeah. yeah. But that's what that felt like. She's like, oh, the most famous restaurant in Paris. It's impossible to get a, you know, a table. And we have like a private one in the cellar. And there are like five pre-selected courses that also come with the wine varietals. Like that didn't yeah. feel like a historical detail. That felt like ye old Alinea. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like very contemporaneous. It also feels contemporaneous, her like resentment for his wealth. And then the fact that he has to talk about like, well, I wasn't wealthy. I just kind of like oopsie daisied into being a duke mm -hmm. and but it doesn't change the fact of his wealth you know it's like it's like problematizing it but it's really hard to problematize a duchy in a historical romance because it's like the thing yeah because it's cinderella story it's like it's it's really hard because like the HEA is that you get to live with all that money and privilege. Yeah. And, like, this book also, like, kind of commits to the fact that even as a business owner, even as, like, an independently success successful in terms of wealth woman in this historical era, our main character is still very much caught on the sea of the patri the patriarchy. Yeah, the patriarchy, right? Because she's like, I can't be seen to be, like, romantically socializing with you because I have a hard enough problem as it is with men taking liberties with me in my shop mm -hmm. landed gentry taking liberties with me specifically and so once again we come to the once again we face the crisis of the only way to solve the problem to come close to solving the problem of womanhood in a historical setting is wealth and power and marriage which is 
even more problematic in this particular historical setting, and I know historicals are not about their historical setting, they're about our time. Yeah. But in 1879, talking about the enfranchisement of women is a very hot topic in England, mostly because a few years prior, they had outlined and solidified the laws around coverture, which made you legally dead when you married, right? Like you couldn't own a business, you couldn't own property, you didn't have rights to your children. And coverture did a lot of really terrible things specifically to married women because you lost all recourse yeah. as a citizen of your nation state. And so like, it's not just about the franchise, like specifically people were fighting to amend the married women's rights because you had more rights as a corpse and you had more rights as a widow. Yeah. So like it's it's also an interesting time to place a male suffragette and like just be like it's franchise and I'm like actually specifically it's about being a married woman and like it's like it's real bad it's real bad you're not gonna own your apothecary anymore and it's like nice that he's like proud of you and he's gonna like let you have it I guess but like it is definitely it's not described as his largesse because he doesn't feel that way about women he sees women's women as equals he was raised by these like Boston Quakers cool 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 but like legally speaking she gonna be dead yeah when they marry I also think like the you know it is a novella there's limited word space right but i will say like i think there's something about this kind of male main character who gets written in 2022 the kind of hero that gets written in 2022 where it reminds it makes me very fearful very weary just to even read them on the page because i'm like okay he's doing things like he's giving a speech in support of women's suffrage He's allowing his uh, sister and her lo- and her wife to live with him in his house and like give them his protection. He's um, he loves his grandma. He loves his grandmother. Yada yada Quaker stuff. He's also like a white man who is um, in a historical novel pursuing a woman of color. Our main character is half black, half white. She's Afro Latin, and like the idea that. He's doing all of these things. We so regularly in our current moment see cishet men who like paint their fingernails and like show up to protests and everything, but they are actually like still very much like perpetuators of oppression in their everyday life. And I think a lot of women get fixated on like, I want to be with a good man. Should I be with a man? I'd like it to be a good man. And so men are able to get away with like, at this point to me, giving a speech on women's suffrage feels like doing the least. Yeah, it's like somebody and like you you'll immediately know where my head's at, where it's like somebody's like, yeah, I watched my kids on Saturday so my wife could go like to her yoga class. And I'm like, yeah, them's your kids. It's not you're not watching them, right? Like you're parenting. <laughs> yeah, you were just there where you are <laughs> as their other parent. It's like yeah. I, I hear like men who call themselves feminists say shit like that or like, oh, yeah, I'm babysitting them. So, you know, my partner can like go have time for herself I'm like you're not babysitting your own kids yeah it's like I'm I I am sincerely doubt I'm weary of men who say the right things but don't live in a 
self-critical way. Anyways. And so seeing that in a historical, it's like he is that as a historical hero. He's not. I know the book creates him as like a truly good man, but I'm like, ugh, because <laughs> of my own current hangups. Those kind of historical slippages reaffirm it in this case. Right, because like in so many ways, Arlo Kenworthy is an idea is such a fantasized ideal. Like he doesn't actually have a fault in this book, which makes him feel like a polemic, right? Like he's not as lived in as even any of the other smaller characters. And the problem that I had with him in particular is the way that he's described as a particular kind of white man. He's very broad-chested. He's very tall. He has this burnt copper hair and these Caribbean blue eyes. Yeah. And this chiseled chin. And there's this line where it's like, if he hadn't been in fancy dress, he would have been an East End bruiser. Yeah. And it was at that point, like, Henry Cavill had been sort of, like, populating <laughs> my brain. And I was like, get out of here. You're inappropriate with young women. And you're very handsome. And I don't like you. And this isn't about you. And then the line, <laughs> in not his, if he hadn't been in fancy dress, he would have been an East End bruiser. And that... Um, Mission Impossible mm. uh, trailer that Henry Cavill was in where they did like the Mickey Mousing beat for beat where he like he throws both of his cuffs and his shoulders into his suit because he's like going to beat down on Tom Cruise like that like out of wherever that was in my body came full force into my mind and I was like is she just describing is Henry this, Cavill? Is this your weirdest part? <laughs> is my weirdest part but I can't tell if it's me or if it's the book and I tried so hard I'm like put a different face there put it and like and yeah. I'm like I'm like all right like let's go through blue-eyed burnt copper hair dudes you know and I was like I tried with um god what's his face the Scottish actor um he was in atonement James McAvoy yeah I was like I tried with James McAvoy and he just doesn't have, doesn't the, have the blue eyes either he does he? have the blue eyes oh, yeah I'm glad you did your research I I actually went through a google image search because I was like it's not Henry Cavill stop it Isabel but what it if is. I propose to you it doesn't have to be any specific existing male body fair but like his <laughs> his body was so detailed like, I know more about this person's body than his personality. I think, like, here's the thing. I say it could just be someone you manifested in your imagination. It doesn't have to be an existing person. But I think in the romance zeitgeist right now, and this is another example of this being very 20, very of the moment, right, is that I think fan culture has made it so that romance is pulling on specific actors. Like our second book we discussed, Improper Arrangements, came with a Pinterest board that you could link look at for the author. And a lot of it was like actual men's photos. And now we're like not just using men men's stock photo, stock man, right? Even though we very much could. People are writing basically real person fic like chris evans rpf yeah i was about to say chris evans is big in this space and publishing it and it's like we we feel weird about rpf anyways it's one thing to like quietly imagine to yourself a specific person it's another to try and like manifest that for other people i think that's when it becomes more like rpf yeah i totally agree but we don't actually know whether or not 
this author intended the character to be Henry Cavill. I mean, if they didn't, they did a really good job of manifesting it for me, like to the point where I found it distracting. Um, Especially after he was in the Enola Holmes and was just like wearing these clothes. But I tried really, really hard to be like, it's not him. It is other person. It is a fictitious Arlo Kenworthy. You can always like, that's the other thing. Like we we can point out like, hey, it seems like there's like a lot of RPF shit happening in romance today. And it'll be very easy for people to be like, no, you're just imagining that. But I think we're reasonable people. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think you maybe think about Henry Cavill more than you should in general. (laughs) He has inappropriate relationships with young women. We have never, I I think this (laughs) might be a bad example, Mm -hmm. but I think we're, I think what your experience was is gesturing towards something that is like kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't make actual human beings your sex objects. Yeah. And like, I think that gets to this point where it's like, I know his physicality so well, but I don't. Yeah. And I know that he loves women's suffrage. (laughs) And he loves women's suffrage. But like, what food does he like? Yeah. We know what kinds of food she likes. Like, what kinds of stuff does he like to do in his downtime? We don't know because he doesn't have a ton, I guess, is the understanding. Like, he is not the main character. Yeah, very much not. And their relationship is not the main driver. Marina is the main driver. And her relationship to herself and, like, society is the main driver. He's like a Henry Cavill suit. That just like walks around and I'm like, hmm. So, mm. so this feels, this is not typical for us, but this feels right. What was your sexiest part? I have two. Pick one. I can't pick one. I can't have two. Oh my God. Fine. I loved and was most tickled by. His suffragette speech. No, because we don't even get the speech on the page. There's a. She's brought her cervical gap with her as contraception. Oh, my God. And I forgot about this. Yeah. And she's like, are you going to be cool? Are you going to be cool? Even though there's like literally been no reason for him, for her to believe that he wouldn't be cool about her having contraception. And he gets this huge smile on his face and he's like, you were planning to ravish me this whole time. And I've been trying to seduce you, but this was a foregone conclusion. Uh, And then he goes down on her again. And it's great. And then they double bag it. He wears a French letter and she has a cervical cap once. The other times, it's just her cervical cap. Just the cervical cap. I don't care for having something sanctioned onto my cervix. That sounds painful. Yeah. I I don't care for the concept. Maybe it's okay. Maybe. I had a friend who loved her diaphragm. Okay. Yeah. I was like, all right, 1971, I see you. Yeah. I don't know. Putting stuff. I don't know. Anyways. What was your sexiest part? Well, my sexiest part was the cap-only sex scene. So it was the the final sex scene. It just felt like it was more – it felt like the most playful and also affectionate. It is a sexy book in that they are, like, cute and, like, the dialogue around sex is very good. Like, this is also a super – I keep, like, banging that drum, but it's, like, there's not a lot of purple prose. There's a lot of dialogue and there's no head hopping and it stays in that like cuddly third, which is a very comfortable place to be in romance as a reader. 
And I bet it's way harder to write. I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, it's just that kind of idealized version. And I feel like we arrive at like this idealized sex scene where it's a give and take. It's a little bit sad. It's a little bit romantic. And they're like sex scenes that are, you know, it talks about performing oral sex on her from his perspective. And it seems like the author has some like real perspective on performing oral sex on a woman's body, on a on a vulva that was super satisfying because I'm I'd much rather hear about like the actual bodily functions being put up as sexy as opposed to like obfuscating them in the idea of sexy like using a lot of metaphor to describe what it's like to perform oral sex I'd rather hear that like when a lot of liquid is released that's cool <laughs> specifically yeah or like he's like splitting your folds to like lick you in this particular way this book is extremely explicit and yeah it is very satisfying it it is it does use the term furrows to describe labia at one point and um i i like probably i'm I'm probably more into reading furrows than i don't know labia i think is kind of a beautiful word you're more into furrows than folds no i think i prefer folds like furrows makes me think of like a glare but i think like Yeah, I think this book really does use that kind of like historical romance language kind of tongue in cheek. Yes, I agree. It's not really a pun, but like pun adjacent intended. And I think that's pretty clever as well. It's like the sex, the sex scenes are very sexy and fun. But I think that final sex scene, because of the fact that they do like more than one kind of sex and the fact that that's a lot of back and forth and that there's like a certain like less of an uncertainty and more of a longing <laughs> at that point that I I liked the final sex scene a lot. And I kind of wish that emotional, it's a novella, but I kind of wish that there had been more pathos in those other sex scenes, which I think were like a lot more like hot. But for me, the sexiest part was that last sex scene. That makes sense. It's very sexy. I do want to know your weirdest part. My weirdest part kind of jives with your idea that Marina is the main character and this is Marina's story. My weirdest part is how the lesbian relationship is treated because it seemed almost regressive. Like there's not anything stereotypical, right? It's not like they like show up and like they play ye old softball or something and it doesn't talk about one of them having a butch haircut or wearing a suit right like there's no specific caricature guidelines and indeed like these women aren't caricatures they are full characters who happen to be in a relationship together and they are like much more lived in than Arlo is I guess my problem is is that their love story their lesbian relationship exists almost entirely as plot device for the heterosexual relationship at the center of the story. And it's a novella, okay? It's a novella. So like stuff like that is going to happen. Things are going to get compressed. But I didn't – it felt like for a book that was clearly so invested in in progressivism, the fact that the relationship between two women – and like I couldn't find – like I tried to like find the thread I could snip – um, that would like separate their the love story between these two women from the ability for these two heteros to get together. Or I guess our main character uh, is bisexual, but for this man and woman to be together um, at the center of the story. And I get that like everybody's relationships around that aren't the central relationship in a historical romance are going to be pretty much in service of that. 
but it felt kind of lame. Like it's she is in uh the fact that she's in a lesbian relationship is one of the reasons she's can't live in London openly as she did before. Um, and so thank goodness he's a duke so that he can offer that protection. Like he also his like reaction to finding out that they're um partnered is a way to show that he's a good man without, you know, showing he's a good man. It just felt like it was kind of used a little too much. Yeah, I can see all of that. And that was my weirdest part. That makes sense. Romance or no man? Honestly, I would be lying if I said that it wasn't a romance. Yeah, 100%. For all of its problems. Like, there's this beautiful scene where, like, he buys her, like, an insanely expensive chemise and then, like, strips it off of yeah. her. Like, I, and even even just the opener, which is my second sexiest part, um, where he's, like, trying to get her attention and she's trying yeah. to ignore him. And then they, like, turn around and lock eyes. And he goes, there you are. And I was like, shit, fuck, it's a romance. I don't even care what happens from here. It really is. And it's one of those things that's like, once again, like so structurally, clearly clean that unfortunately you can see all the pulleys, right? And I think that's because it's in short form. And I feel like that wouldn't be so obvious in- A long form. If this store was longer, right? And there was more room to play. And so it is, yeah, I would say it's a romance. I would definitely recommend this for people who are interested in this kind of, you know, people who just want a man who has good interests would like this hero. <laughs> yeah, like if you like Courtney Milan, this is like, this is a straight down the field for you. Like this is going to be like. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Everybody we know likes Courtney Milan. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anybody who would cop to not liking Courtney Milan. Yeah, so like, yeah, it's a total romance. Like, I loved so much of this dialogue. And like, I, you know, it it ticked all my buttons. I, you know, yeah, I just, yeah, it was adorable. And like, it does. I think you're absolutely right. I can see the rigging, which I didn't love. And we've pointed to those problems. But this also made me think that this is an author that I would like to invest in long form, because I think there's a lot here that I already like. So if there could be more spackling I would probably like that more too yeah (laughs) yeah I think I would revisit as a contemporary uh, or like find a contemporary novel first because you know I got upset about the Bordeaux sauce I get it like you're also a very good cook like you take that stuff seriously loosen your stays but never your principles Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. 
If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.